morning, if I didn't say that already. <laughs> um, I'm really blessed to be able to come and speak. This is the third time that Dave asked me and, uh, to come and speak on a Sunday morning, so I'm pretty happy about that, and I always feel really blessed and really grateful whenever I get this opportunity. Um, but some of you may not have heard me preach before, so um, I'm a Christian. Uh, whatever I say, I hope comes from the Bible and is fact and is true and glorifying to God. Um, just so you know, I just want to give God glory with this sermon, even though we're probably going to get into some hard, difficult things as I'm speaking um, I just want you to know the heart that I have for God and want to glorify Him and, and um, uh, just my Christian faith. You'll see why I kind of put an emphasis on that. But I am going to talk about love your neighbor this morning. Um, it's a very common phrase that we use. It's one of the most important commandments in the Bible, right? According to Jesus, like love God and love your neighbor. Actually, love your neighbor as yourself, right? So not just any old love, but a pretty radical, difficult love. And, and loving your neighbor is a really hard thing to do. Now, like We're all neighbors, right, in this sense, um, but we're also brothers and sisters in Christ, many of us. We all belong to God, and we're all believers, so we think a lot of the same things, and we hopefully act the same way in certain situations. But it gets even harder when you move outside of the family, family of God, and you have to love the other. Because the neighbor isn't just us. The neighbor is like the neighbor down the street, or your coworkers, or family members that might not know God. They're your neighbors too. So loving the other becomes much more challenging in a lot of ways. You know, loving people that don't think like us, that don't act like us, that have radically different theologies than us, you know. Um, Sometimes we stumble through that, and we want to be loving a lot of the times, but we actually mess up, um, and sometimes what we don't know gets in our way. We put our foot in our mouth when we really just want to share love. Like when we're doing missions, as our church is in this time, when we're moving and doing and like being God's hands and feet out in the world, we inevitably have conversations with people and uh, sometimes step on toes. That's basically where the sermon is coming from. Um, I'm going to be talking about um, the parable of the Good Samaritan and the idea of like serving people, meeting their needs, and we're going to tie all that in together with what it's like when like a Samaritan is not a Jew, right? And I'm going to sort of emphasize what Jesus is making a big point with a good Samaritan rather than just a, a good Jew, and, and you'll see what I mean. Um, but I began writing this sermon through the idea that like loving your neighbor many times is hand in hand with evangelism. Um, that like if we're going to love somebody, we probably should tell them about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We should probably tell them that like we have eternal life, the living water flowing through us, and you can have that. And I mean, if you don't share the gospel, the question is, like, do you really love that person? You should want to see God work miraculously through them and save them from their hell and also minister to them. So, if, you know, if you're if that's not there, I question if love is there. Um, and that's where I started with this, but it has to be a lot more than evangelism. I talked about Dave in preparation for the sermon. He wants to know what I'm going to say, just in case I say something crazy. So he likes to review, you know. And so he reminded me that, like, loving your neighbor is so much more than evangelism. So I do want to emphasize that it's so much more than just, like, giving people the facts and saying, like, I know Jesus because this, this, and this, and I'm Christian because this, this, and this, and here's why you should be. Like, loving your neighbor can be and ought to be way more, way more beautiful than all that, way more significant than all that, like the missions we're doing. We're just going and helping people. We don't ask their faith before we give them food, 
We just give them food. And if they want to talk about faith, then that's awesome. And we do, and we love to share our faith, but we should serve regardless, like an unconditional thing, kind of like how God operates. When we're operating at our best, it should look a little bit like how God operates, right? Um, but I do want to mention a few things about evangelism before I dive into scripture that we are, I've had the benefit of meeting many Christians who are very passionate about evangelism, who are really good at it. But oftentimes when we talk about evangelism, we're like, you know, convince them that God's real. Like we're, when we talk about evangelism, when we do evangelism, we're quick to evangelize non-believers, like atheists, right? People who don't know God. And when it comes up in conversation, like, ah, I don't think I believe in God. I don't think I believe in Jesus. We're like, whoa, well, here's why you should believe in God. And a lot of times we're pretty good at that. But this sermon is not geared toward that. What about people who say, I do believe in God. I believe in Allah. I believe in Vishnu and this and that. I have all these different, you know, many people have many different gods. What if they say, I've got it all figured out. I have my religion. Then, like, how do we have that conversation with them and say, well, I believe something different. You know what I mean? It's kind of easy when someone says, I don't believe. And we say, well, here's why you should. Or I was raised in the church, but I don't really go any church and I don't go to church anymore. And we want to say, well, you should, and, and here's why. And church is so beautiful, you should come back. And we're good at that most of the time. But we often are not so good when people have a faith of their own. They're rooted in. They have a rich theology. They have their own arguments, counter-arguments to our arguments. And we get fumbled up. And sometimes our own worst enemy is our lack of knowledge, our ignorance, you know, to put it bluntly. I had this little line that came to me during the week that our knowledge can become a lack of love. Our lack of knowledge, rather. Did I say no? Our lack of knowledge can be, oh, I guess that too, but our lack of knowledge becomes a lack of love, and our lack of love can become all-out racism and anti-Semitism and fear of the other. Loving your neighbor is all about loving the other. If we fear them, we're doing a really bad job. Sometimes you have to get to know somebody to really love them, right? Should be obvious. And in a lot of ways, and in kind of a funny way, a lot of Christian sermons tend to be pretty obvious. A lot of the Bible is pretty obvious. But we need to be reminded because we're humans and we mess things up sometimes. So yeah, if you don't know your neighbor, if you have a bunch of coworkers who are this religion or that religion, Hindu, Buddhist, Sikh, Muslim, like maybe spend some time. If they're in your life, if you have family members, like get to know what they believe before you try to rebuke them and tell them about Jesus or whatever, you know. Get to know it, because if you expect them to hear you out, maybe hear them out and have a loving, respectful conversation. So that is sort of the backdrop of this sermon. If I say anything that sounds contradictory, know that I, that's my aim. I might, you know, say some scary things, but we should love. It's all about love. So before I ramble on too, too much, I want to open up to the scriptures. I'm going to preach on four different scriptures and show how they all come together and how they all sing each other's song and amplify each other. Um, and I'm just going to use scriptures to say what I need to say. I'm going to use facts to say what I need to say and try to keep my opinions out of it. Does that sound good? All right, so let's open up to Leviticus 19. We're going to talk about love your neighbor as yourself, so open up to Leviticus 19, right? As you're flipping, flip with me to Leviticus, right? You might be thinking, really? We're going to go to Leviticus? Like, I've heard things about that book. We're going to go to Leviticus to talk about love your neighbor? 
You might have heard some scary things about Leviticus, like it's a book of laws and rituals and all that stuff. Well, it is. And actually, some of it is kind of scary and gross and fearful. That's sometimes the point the Bible is trying to make. You know, like animal sacrifices, not supposed to be a pretty picture. You know, it's supposed to gross you out because sin grosses God out. Anyways, (laughs) well, so open up to Leviticus 19 and... I wanted to open here because this is actually the first time the Bible uses this phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. It's 19 verse 18. But there's something beautiful about this fact. Of course, Jesus quotes this passage and uh, explains it and fleshes it out for us. And we'll read that in a minute too. But the context, Leviticus 18, if you ever read it, Leviticus 20, if you ever read it, man, we get into, we get into the thick of Ritual, but also law. I mean, there is a distinction in Leviticus between ritual cleanliness and just straight-up sin. You know what I mean? Like, here's what the Levites should do. That's why it's called Leviticus. Here's what the Levites should do to keep themselves ritualistically clean. And then this, and then this is true for all humans at all times. I think if you read Leviticus 18, it's true for all humans at all times. But we're not going to get into that. Read with me Leviticus 19, verse 17, we'll start in 17 through 18. It says, You shall not hate in your heart any one of your kin. You shall reprove your neighbor, or you will incur guilt on yourself. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. There you have it. So the first time we see this in Scripture comes out of Leviticus, and and the Lord says it himself, you know. So, without further ado, let's just flip straight on to Matthew 5. Um, Matthew 5 is the next time, I believe the very next time you hear this this phrase used. And Jesus is going to shed some more light on it, tell us what it means and how we should apply it to our lives. So, flip with me to Matthew 5. If you don't know, Matthew 5 is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew 5 through 7. You should read it if you haven't. It's really awesome. You've probably heard plenty of sermons on it. Um, And Jesus does this interesting thing on the Sermon on the Mount. He's explaining the law. He's explaining the Torah. And he does this funny thing where he says, well, you've heard it said in the law of Moses, in the Torah, this, this, and this. But I say to you, you know. And so he says, uh, you've heard it said that if you want to divorce, just write your wife a certificate of divorce and you're good. But I say to you, if the only grounds for divorce is sexual morality. So th- this is the type of thing Jesus does throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 and on. So he's making a distinction. He's not doing away with the law. Jesus himself says that not one iota of the law will pass away until the sky does. So it's permanent. The law is not going anywhere. But what Jesus is doing by saying, well, you've heard it said, but I say, he's fleshing it out. He's making it richer. And sometimes he's making it harder Um, You might not like that word, but Jesus makes the law even stricter in a lot of ways. Um, But he's really just showing you the breadth of the law and the beauty of the law. And Paul has this beautiful line where he says, it's in the spirit of the law, not the letter, you know, that we follow. In spirit, not letter. Uh, You might have heard that phrase. It comes from Paul. So that's kind of what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. Anywho, Matthew 5, verse 43, so near the end of the chapter. Jesus begins to do that same thing to the love your enemy law, that commandment. He says, you have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of the Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? That's kind of what I was saying earlier. It's kind of easy to love your Christian family or your immediate family. What happens when we start to love the other, right? It says, do not even the tax collectors and the sinners do this? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than the other people? Do not even the Gentiles do this? Be perfect, therefore your heavenly Father is perfect. Ooh, we don't like the perfect language, do we? <laughs> but Jesus tells us, be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. That's a whole other sermon. But he does this interesting thing where he says, yeah, the Torah says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. He's actually kind of making it harder on us, if anything. People have all this confusion about the Old Testament that, it, that it's uh, no longer viable for us. It's so wrong. Um, but again, that's another sermon. Um, but yeah, Jesus does this wonderful, awesome thing and tells us to love our enemies. Really, really hard to do. You know, it's easier said than done, right? Um, but Jesus did it, didn't he? He figured it out. And so with people who, of other faiths, people of other religions, people who aren't our brothers and sisters, but our neighbors still, we got to love them. we got to figure out how to love them. And we're bad at it. That's why I felt the need to preach the sermon. Anyways, Luke 10. Let's just keep on moving through and go to Luke 10. I want to say less and read more so that the scriptures speak for themselves. I don't want it to be my sermon. I want it to be God's sermon. Luke 10, verse 25 through 37. Some of you might already know. Boom, that's the Good Samaritan. It's a beautiful, beautiful passage, beautiful um, parable that Jesus told. Very effective. When, I mean, speaking in parables like Jesus did is such an effective way to teach, isn't it? He's giving metaphors and showing you, not telling you exactly what he's meaning, but he's telling you a story so that you can figure it out yourself. Um, but anyways... In Luke 10, verse 25, hopefully you're there, it says, Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Rabbi, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the Torah? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your strength and with all your mind. That's in Deuteronomy, by the way. Um, and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. Jesus said to him, you've given the right answer, do and you will live. But the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor anyways? I mean, it's one thing for the law to tell us to love our neighbor, but we got to know who they are. Well, apparently this lawyer wasn't in attendance at the Sermon on the Mount because it kind of doesn't, you're supposed to love your enemy. You're supposed to love everybody, love everybody indiscriminately, but Jesus kind of humors him and tells him this beautiful parable. He wants to know, who's my neighbor? Jesus says, I'll tell you who your neighbor is. Actually, no, I'll tell you a parable, and you'll tell me who your neighbor is. So he wanted to justify himself. And Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. This guy got jumped, he got beat up, and he's left half dead on the road. Horrible, horrible thing. Hopefully nothing like this happens to any of us. Um, so what happens next? Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and he came and saw him. So good, a priest is coming, right? 
Like salvation, this guy's, you know, the, the, surely this man of God is going to do something about this beat up poor man who just got robbed and now he's half dead. Surely the priest will do something. No, actually it says he passed on the other side of the road. Like that priest is a jerk. <laughs> what a scumbag, right? Like he just saw a guy half dead and left him. And that's a priest. And this is supposed to be us in the story. We're not the Good Samaritan in this story. We're the priest and the Levite. So what's the, the Levite comes, right? So in verse 32, a Levite also came. And when he saw the, he came by and saw him, and he passed on the other side. The Levites were the, you know, the tribe of Israel who were designated as priests. Not all Levites were priests, but all priests were Levites. Kind of like a square and rectangle thing. But Levites still, surely, godly men. Why did the priest and Levite ignore well, I think Dave has been so hot on this missional stuff lately because the church has become these two men. We have forgot our whole point in being the hands and feet of God and being out in the world and loving and ministering. Like these, the priest and Levite should have stopped and did something. Church, you got to stop and do when God is telling you to stop and do and then work. And when you see somebody in need, just help them. Again, don't ask what they believe and are you a Christian, then I can help you. No, love your enemies. So the story continues. Let's see here. Um, the Levite came, he ignored him, but a Samaritan, and this is verse 33, but a Samaritan while traveling came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He had compassion, right? He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to the inn, and took care of him. Exactly what you should do, right? The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The, the lawyer said, Well, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said, go and do likewise. Now, there's a lot to miss in this parable. Again, you need some historical context. You need to know what Jesus knew. You need to know what the lawyer knew. Like, we're, we're not first century Jews, right, living in Israel. So sometimes we'd miss this. But the good Samaritan is supposed to be, feel like an oxymoron. You know that? A good Samaritan, we're going to read in John chapter 4 that Jews don't like Samaritans. They don't get along. They hate each other. Samaritans hate Jews. Jews hate Samaritans. There's enmity. But Jesus tells this parable where a priest, a man of God, and a Levite, a man of God, ignored. While a good Samaritan, what? Came by and helped. This is weird. So who's the neighbor? Is it the Jews who are supposedly godly men by title, but not in action? Or is it the Samaritan who actually man up and did what he was supposed to do? Ugh. It you know, makes you uncomfortable. It makes you feel convicted. Like the lawyer who said, it was the one who showed him mercy. You know, that's the neighbor. So anyways, with that in mind, I did want to read John chapter 4 as well. Because it not only gives us more context on the Jew and Samaritan race relations and, and how they interact and all that. But it also will help me lead into the ending of my sermon where I'm going to give you a little bit of a case study. But flip with me to John chapter 4. This is, again, like I said, we're going to understand the Samaritans a little bit more with this. Actually, if you want to know more about the Samaritans and who they were and how they got started, read it in 1 Kings and 2 Kings. It talks about Samaritans there. Um, but you'll, you'll get what you need to know in John chapter 4 here. 
And then this is this too, the woman at the well, powerful, powerful story. And very relevant for us today. So I'm going to use the Samaritans to be our mirror, like we're Jews and people of other faiths are Samaritans. And how do we love them? Are we as good at loving them as Jesus was? So John chapter 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard, Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it wasn't Jesus himself who baptized, but his disciples, like it's a competition anyways. He left Judea and started back to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus was tired from his journey and was sitting by the well, and it was about noon. So it says Jesus was coming from Judea, that's the southern kingdom of Israel, going up to Galilee, which is like the northern part of the northern kingdom. Samaria's in between. Well, you don't realize sometimes that Jews would circumnavigate Samaria. They didn't even want to go through Samaria and meet and walk on the same ground as the Samaritans. They wouldn't do it. It's like how you avoid a bad neighborhood. They would avoid it. But Jesus went straight through. It says because he was tired, but I think he had a plan. So this is a very fascinating thing to me, that Jesus actually went through Samaria in the first place. But sure enough, in verse 7, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Right? Verse 9. So there you have it. Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Like, he shouldn't even be talking to this woman. She shouldn't be talking to him as far as cultural norms go. This shouldn't be happening, but it's happening. But Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that was asking you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you don't have a bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and with his sons and his flock drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give them will become a spring of living water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water again. Like She doesn't get it. Um, actually, if you read John chapter 3, this, uh, Dave mentioned this last sermon, last week, um, the uh, encounter with Nicodemus. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, like, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus goes, well, how can you enter your mother's womb a second time? He doesn't get it, right? So Jesus says to the woman at the well, I could give you living water. And she's like, well, you don't have a bucket. The well is deep. Are you better than our ancestor Jacob? Like, she doesn't get it. He's talking about living water, eternal life. And she says, yeah, give me that because I don't like coming to this well. Like, what? So this is, again, this is us. You know, sometimes we're the dummies in the, the biblical stories, Sorry, the people who miss Jesus when he's right in front of your face. Jesus said to her, go and call your husband and come back. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying this, I have no husband. For you have, have, you've ha you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What, have you, what you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, 
I see that you are a prophet. <laughs> like, you figured out my dirty laundry kind of thing. This woman was probably living in sin. She's living with a man who was not her husband. Um, you figured it out. I, I perceive you're a prophet, right? So knowing that Jesus is a prophet of some kind, she desires to ask him a question in verse 20. So she takes this opportunity, asks this prophet a, a theological question, says, our ancestors, notice this too, our ancestors, like I said, sorry, not to interrupt myself, <laughs> um, our ancestors, Samaritans were of the same heritage of the Jews, but things happened and they became grossly divided. Again, you can read that in the Old Testament, as scary as that is, blow the dust off and just read it. <laughs> Sorry. Um, our, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, but you, plural, you Jews, say that the place where people must worship is Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll explain all this stuff. Jesus said to, him, Jesus said to her, I am. I'm the Messiah. I am he who is speaking to you. And verse 27, just then the disciples came and they were astonished to see him speaking to this woman, right? <laughs> like the disciples are shocked to see Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman. But this is so rich, so fascinating. The way that Jesus handles this kind of awkward conversation that he should not have been having according to social norms. You, you don't go through Samaria when you're going up to Galilee and you don't, certainly don't stop at a well and talk to one of the women there. You know what I mean? But he did. And she has this theological question like, which mountain should we worship on, Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim? Jesus is like, well, there's coming a day, and in fact it's here where true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. So she believes that her and the Samaritan people worship God. And Jesus and the, you know, the Jews, they worship God, but they worship in different places. They have different practices. They function very differently. They may be, look like different religions, but they worship the same God kind of like Christians and Jews. You know, Jews worship Yahweh. They worship the same God, but they miss a lot, right? According to us. They don't have the Messiah. They don't know, they don't believe in the Trinity. Anywho, but Jesus doesn't rebuke her and say, no, 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 throw away everything you know and follow me. But he says, you worship God, sure, but you worship what you don't know. We worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. So this is very powerful for me in relation to what we're going to talk about. Um, but like I said, this is, this is all pretty shocking stuff when you really suss it out. So I wanted to relate this uncomfortable, difficult race relations of Jews and Samaritans with us today. Like You might have family members, like I said, who are Hindu, who are Muslim, who are Buddhist and Sikh and everything else. You might have coworkers, you might have neighbors that practice other religions than you. The question is, can we be as gracious as Jesus was to encounter them, like go to their homes? You know, I mean, like Dave would say, like we should paint their porches and help them out and like feed them and do whatever. But if they want to have a theological conversation with us, like the women, we should be more than ready. 
And we should be thrilled to, because actually what I didn't read later on in the story is this woman became a believer in Jesus. She told her townspeople, and they became believers. And uh, you might know the, the phrasing where they said, they encountered Jesus, and they said, it's no longer because of what you said that we, we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. This is indeed the Savior of the world. You might have heard this line. So Jesus doing this very taboo thing actually made a whole bunch of disciples. So when we go and minister in the world, as we should, as we are as a church, I'm so happy the church has shifted in this way, our church at least. I hope more churches follow suit. Um, we still need to preach the gospel. That's why, I, like I said, I started out with this evangelistic push, and Dave kind of set me straight a little bit to make it more about love. And I think he's right to do that. And I'm glad we have Dave. I hope you're glad we have Dave. But, but the point still remains that we need to be loving in our encounters with people, maybe meet their physical needs first, kind of like the Good Samaritan, met the physical needs. It wasn't like, oh, you're a Jew, I'm not going to help you. I, would, I wouldn't even touch a Jew. That's what the Samaritan should have done. The priest should have helped. But what do we do when, it, when we encounter people of other faiths in our lives? So obviously love them, minister to them. And have conversations. Um, but I just want to give a case study, to use Dave's language, that uh, I want to use Islam as a case study. Islam in America is probably fairly misunderstood, um, but also feared and, and, you know, we don't, man, it's, it's difficult to talk about, but Americans have a lot of hatred toward Middle Eastern people. Not even just Muslims, but it's become this racist thing where even if you look like a Muslim, we're afraid. You know what I mean? Um, and I say we. Hopefully it's not we and, and others, but sometimes it's we. Um, we. We get afraid and we get nervous when we encounter a Muslim, and we certainly don't know how to evangelize Muslims. We don't know where to begin. Say, you should believe in God. And they say, well, I do believe in God. Like, uh, well, okay, well, you should believe in Jesus. And they say, well, I, I do believe in Jesus. He's a good prophet. And we're like, ah, uh, ah. Uh. And, you know, you, we, we're difficult. And we say, well, you know, you don't worship God. You worship Allah. And Allah is, is Satan. He's awful. And he's the, people say he's the moon god and stuff like that. I do want to talk about Islam as this sort of case study because I happen to know a little bit more about Islam than other religions. So apply this to the people in your lives, whatever they may be. But I want to make a point and show you something, something fascinating, something powerful, um, to help you not put your foot in your mouth and help you be a loving, a better, a better loving Christian. So, um, what you might not know about, I'm just going to go out and say it. This is difficult. It's like childbirth for me. <laughs> sorry, I shouldn't say that. But, but this is very. This is. I'm sorry, ladies. But this is so difficult to get out because it's hard, and you're not going to want to hear it. Um, but I'm just going to try to say facts without opinions. So the word Allah is a tricky word. We don't like it in America. We get scared when we hear that word, and we get confused when we hear that word. Um, but <laughs> Islam existed 500 years after Christianity. You know, Muhammad came around 500 years after Jesus. So Christianity starts out in Israel, and we read in Acts, and in Paul's letters, and et cetera, where Christianity spread out to the Greco-Roman Empire. And these Hebrews who worshiped Jesus as uh, the Messiah, as God in the flesh, they were teaching Greeks and Romans about God and about Jesus. And, the, and you know, we find in the New Testament the word theos. So Old Testament word for God is Elohim. The New Testament word for God is theos because it's written in Greek. 
So rather than the Hebrews pushing every aspect of what they believe on them in the sense that they didn't force Greeks to now speak Hebrew and say Elohim, they allowed them to use the word they're familiar with, theos. They, I mean, they use the word theos and thea for gods and goddesses of all kinds, you know, like Zeus and whoever, all the rest, you know, um, Mercury and Venus, actually all the planets named after Greco-Roman gods. So all those, they, they, that word theos meant their gods. But Christians, when they discipled them, said, no, no, the real theos, the only living theos is Yahweh. You know, is, and he became flesh and we met him. So they discipled in this way. Similarly, although it's not told in depth in the Bible, when Christianity spread to the Middle East in a not Greek-speaking world, but an Arabic-speaking world, they used the word Allah. So early Christians, first, second, and third century Christians, before Islam ever existed, Christians used the word Allah. So now, Muslims do not worship God the way we do, right? They don't believe in the Trinity. They hate the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, so I'm not saying that Muslims and Christians are the same, but I'm saying Christians, before Muslims ever existed, used the word Allah. Um, and actually, when we translate the Bible into Arabic, even today, we use the word Allah for Elohim and Theos. We don't use the word God because God is an English word, comes from German. Arabic people don't know German very well, you know? So we use Allah. Allah means the God. Um, and Allah was used prior to Christianity um, in reference to, like, the moon god, like I said. People get it all twisted. Because uh, before Christianity showed up, the Middle East was, like, heavily polytheistic, just like everywhere else in the world, just like the Greco-Roman Empire was polytheistic. So they had this pantheon of gods, and the moon god was at the top, so all these little gods were Elah, gods, and the one at the top was the god, Allah, Al-Elah. Um, so they called him that. But when Christians came along, they said, no, 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 these gods don't even exist. They're not real. Yahweh is real. He became flesh. We met him. So the God, the only real God, Allah, became flesh as Jesus. This is what first, second, and third century Christians did before Islam existed. Um, and again, like I said, when we translate Bibles today, we use that word, the word that we don't like so much. And I hate to say it, but I say this because you might encounter Muslims today and say something really dumb. I've heard Christians say, you know, Allah is the devil and Allah is this, and it, like, it, they're just not true. If you talk to Muslims, they say they worship the God of Abraham, but they don't know the God of Abraham like we know the God of Abraham. We know God of Abraham became Jesus and dwelt among us. We know that the God of Abraham is triune. So like Jesus says to the woman at the well, he doesn't say your religion is totally garbage. He just says, you worship what you don't understand. We worship what we do understand. What is that, verse 20? It's somewhere in there, trust me. I read it. Um, but this is how we ought to approach them, not to denounce every ounce of what they have, but to explain, like, you don't get God the way we get God. Um, and then have that conversation, but don't go into it putting your foot in your mouth and saying that Allah is the devil or the moon God or anything like that, because actually Arabic-speaking Christians today still use the word Allah. So if you ever have the advantage of meeting an Arabic-speaking Christian, whether they're from the Middle East or from here, there's, there's plenty, they'll use that word, you know, when they're speaking their language. Might make you uncomfortable. Used to make me uncomfortable if I'm fair, um, but it ought not to. Just like the word God's not in the Bible. Like I said, it's German. Gott. German. It's not there. It's written in Hebrew and Greek. We had to translate the word Elohim and the word theos into God. 
They translated it into Allah. So I know it's like it's so difficult. I, it might freak you out. I'd love to have any questions after the sermon, and I could say so much more about this. Um, maybe you don't like it. That's okay. My point is, love your neighbor. Don't judge your neighbor. Don't say silly things that you don't know what you're talking about. Don't go into a conversation with someone assuming you know enough about their faith to dismantle it. Don't dismantle their faith. Go in there and serve them and meet their needs and paint their living room. Help them, love them. And then if they want to have a conversation about Jesus, thank God, tell them about Jesus um, and show them the difference between our faith. Say, you worship what you don't understand. We worship what we understand. Um, we worship the true God and give them Jesus. That's what it's all about. And again, we, if we love them, we should give them Jesus. Amen? Amen. Sorry. Heavenly Father, thank you for, again, the opportunity to preach to these wonderful people of God. I hope I did you justice. I hope I took my opinions out of it. We talked about difficult things, Lord God, but you're a difficult God and you're complex. The world you've created for us to live in is complex, and partly because of the fall, we do deal with other religions. We do deal with other people who worship what can only be demons, but we need to encounter them with love regardless and love our enemies. So, Lord God, please give us the strength and know how to do that. Give us the love to do that. Put love in our hearts for these people. Um, it's a passion of mine. I pray that you give this similar passion to others to not just preach to atheists and the people that we typically encounter, but people of all faiths. As we love on them physically, let's love on them toward their spirit as well. Praise you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.